Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley with a new recreation map you'll hear about later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department reminds Oregonians to enjoy the outdoors, seek uncrowded areas, know their limits, and don't just be careful, be insanely careful with campfires or any flames. Happily, the rain and cooler temperatures have allowed for lifting of most campfire bans, but make sure to check on your specific location before heading out. Yes, indeed. I went backpacking uh, last weekend, and it felt great having a campfire again. It had been such a long time. Camping is just not the same without a campfire. Your little your little stove to heat up your water in the morning for coffee does not cut it. It sometimes. does not cut it. It's just, it's not the same. But all right, in this episode, we are going to do a couple things. We're going to recap the biggest outdoor Oregon news from this past summer, wildfires and permits and such, before our new outdoors intern reports from the Mount Jefferson Wilderness on a group trying to bring back a beautiful but forgotten trail. But first, here's some guitar music to get us going. All right, David, today we've got a podcast in two parts. So we're going to start by catching up on the biggest news from the summer, including a new permit system, a pretty active wildfire season, and a look at the crowding and search and rescue numbers. Then we're going to get a report from our new outdoors intern, Eddie Binford Ross, on the effort to bring a spectacular but forgotten trail back to life in the Jefferson wilderness. So that'll be in the second half of our show, and you'll want to stick around for that one. Okay, so if we're talking about the biggest news of the summer, why don't we start with really what kind of dominated uh, all the conversations about Oregon's outdoors, drought and wildfires? For sure. This was an odd spring and summer. If you remember... If going back a little ways, we had that ice storm back in February, got a little mountain snow in March, and then like the faucet just shut off. It stopped raining in Oregon for almost five months while the hottest summer in recorded history hit the state. That's not hyperbole, by the way. It was officially the hottest summer statewide in recorded history, going all the way back to records from the 1890s. It was kind of the capper on a year of extreme weather that saw record wildfires in 2020, the record ice storm last winter, and then this historic drought and heat. If you want some positive news, though, we actually had a pretty wet September, and there are projections that October could be wetter than normal. I also saw some projections it might be a decently snowy winter, so hopefully we've put the worst of this behind us. I feel like we've checked like pretty much most of the extreme weather bingo card. I don't want to worry about the spaces we haven't, like flooding maybe, but let's just put all that behind us. Well, I don't even know why you got to bring that up because there's one super obvious thing that we've been talking about for forever that's like been the only thing that hasn't happened. That's why we're not going to mention it. We're not going to mention it, but I bet our listeners can fill in the blank. You get five points if you do. Fair enough. Well, along with historic drought, Oregon saw a number of wildfires this summer, and it obviously didn't reach 2020 levels, but where does the summer stack up compared to sort of recent years? Well, I think this summer was a more accurate look at what Oregon might expect in the future. It wasn't the apocalypse in the same way that we had with the Labor Day fires last year, but we did have a decent bit of fire. 
So this summer so far, and the season is pretty much winding down and coming to an end, Oregon burned 825,000 acres. That's pretty similar to what we saw in 2017, 2018. And while it's certainly above like the 10-year average, you know, that average is just getting higher and higher. So I feel like I think this is just a good portrayal of the future. There's quite a lot of smoke in the air, uh, unhealthy air quality. But as in the past, the fires stayed mostly in remote areas instead of burning into populated areas like happened last year. Last year was a year I will remember for decades, maybe centuries from now, because of that crazy east wind event that just doesn't happen that often in Oregon. But, you know, this is, I don't want to say par for the course because it was so dry, but this is sort of what we're getting used to. And really, a bulk of those acres can be sort of assigned to just one fire in the southern half of the state, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. When you break down the numbers, almost half were from the gigantic bootleg fire. And that was just north of the California border. So right along, you know, that's more in the kind of state of Jefferson area. Uh, That at one point, that fire was pretty wild, though. It was creating its own weather for a while, like creating its own lightning. It was about as intense as wildfires get. It burned over 400,000 acres, becoming the third largest fire in Oregon since 1900, and it burned 161 homes. So while obviously that was tough, um, in the northern half of the state, it was a very modest to kind of normal year. We did lose some cool stuff, especially in the Bull of the Woods wilderness, uh, which was tough. We lost a historic fire lookout uh, that we've actually talked about on this podcast before. Um, But it was just nothing close to the widespread destruction of last year. So in other words, if you live in northwest Oregon, you really didn't have much to complain about when it came to wildfires. Even if the Even the smoke wasn't nearly as bad in Northwest Oregon as just about anywhere else across the West. If you lived in the Willamette Valley, be thankful for that Pacific Ocean breeze that just constantly pushed that wildfire smoke away from us and into, you know, other parts of the inland West that, again, terrible air quality for a lot of the summer. Yeah. Well, we talked about early this year how the drought and fires kind of overshadowed what we had expected to be, you know, the biggest uh, story in Oregon's outdoors this summer. And that was the first year of the backcountry permit system. It's a new permit required to hike and camp in the Three Sisters, Mount Jefferson and Mount Washington wilderness areas. That's almost a half million acres of Oregon's backcountry now under this permit system. The goal was to kind of limit growing crowds and get things under control. So how'd that go the first year? So I guess the best way to describe it was not ideally. Now, look, a lot of people were very supportive of this permit system. It definitely accomplished the goal of reducing the number of people and crowding out there. It reduced trash and damage. So in some ways, you know, at least half the people I talked to were very supportive of this new permit system. But at the same time, there was a whole bunch of problems that kind of messed with the perception of the first year for sure. Okay, so give us some examples. Well, the frustration started with reserving the permits online, both due to technical glitches and confusion in how you book them on recreation.gov. But the big story was one that the Forest Service doesn't appear to have anticipated, and that was there was kind of a mad rush to grab up all the permits, but a lot of them didn't actually get used and people didn't cancel them. So of the early permits purchased in April, half of them went unused during the summer, allowing them to essentially go to waste. So people didn't show up for the hikes or backpacking trips they'd reserved. The effect of this was very frustrating for a lot of hikers because they would go to reserve a permit and they'd be entirely sold out. But then they'd drive past that same trailhead and see the parking lots like half full. 
So a good example is Green Lakes, which forever has been kind of the poster child for the issues with crowding. It was constantly overflowing with traffic, overflowing with people. This year, it frequently sold out its permit numbers, which was expected, and that should have meant that there was around 100 people on the trail. But often, there was only 40 or 50 people out there, and maybe half the campsites out there were actually used. So the Forest Service kind of keyed in on this no-show issue as a big problem that they're going to try to fix next year. So do you have any idea about how they're going to go about doing that? It's a tough problem. Uh, First off, if you cancel a permit, you don't get your money back. The $1 for day use or the $6 for overnight that you pay for the permits is actually just a transaction fee that goes into the coffers of Recreation.gov, which is owned by a big corporation called Boz Allen Hamilton. And there was plenty of valid reasons not to use the permit this summer. First and foremost, because of the aforementioned wildfires, it was a smoky year with unhealthy air a lot of the time in central Oregon. So a lot of people just held onto their permits until the last minute to see if conditions would improve. And when they didn't, they just kind of swallowed the loss. And there's a million other totally legitimate reasons people didn't use the permits, from injuries to family issues to a fairly big pandemic that is still going on. This no-show issue wasn't nefarious for the most part, I don't think. I had to cancel a few permits at the last second because life happens. So what can they really do? Well, I suspect next year they'll have more permits available closer to the date they're used rather than releasing a bunch early in the season. The no-show rate on permits purchased seven days before a trip was a lot lower, about 30%. So that's probably one thing that they'll do. But I think that this is going to continue to be an issue. The Three Sisters in particular is just the backyard forest of Bend. It's not really a destination type place that you normally associate with this type of permit system. So while the intent here is good, it's going to take some time and some work to make this system go as smoothly as it's supposed to. Plus, the first year of systems like this are always bad. I did write a long story in this that you can read at statesmanjournal.com slash outdoors. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the size of crowds overall in Oregon's outdoors, the number of search and rescue incidents, and about a new tourist tax that's going to be applied to out-of-state RV campers in Oregon State Parks next year. That's when we return. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water. And it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. Okay, Zach, so for several years, we've had stories tallying recreation use in Oregon's outdoors. In other words, how many people are on trails, rivers, lakes, and campgrounds? What kind of summer did we have this summer generally? So in general, the numbers stayed right around record levels in Oregon's outdoors. For context, the number of people in Oregon's outdoors has been rising pretty steadily and often sharply since around 2013. And that makes sense because it basically follows Oregon's growing population, which grew by 400,000 people over the past decade. The same reason that we have a new congressional seat in Congress is the same reason the trails are so busy on the weekends. The most obvious trend this year was that people really flooded to the Oregon coast to escape the heat and the smoke. 
I don't have official numbers yet, but I'm expecting a record-setting year at the coast campgrounds and day-use sites. I was also told that the Western Oregon forests, like Willamette National Forest, so like swimming holes and nice, cool, foresty places, they saw right around record levels of people as well, which was kind of exacerbated by the number of thousands of acres that are still closed by the Labor Day fires. So you bring all those things together, the the heat, the drought, and these closures, and it just pushed people into very specific places. It wasn't record setting everywhere. Parts of Central Oregon, Eastern Oregon, and Southern Oregon saw big declines when the smoke degraded air quality. But overall, in the same way that we look at hotter and drier summers as the new normal, Busier outdoor spaces are also a new normal, and that's true across the West. This is not an Oregon issue by any stretch of the imagination. So crowds are one thing. What about general mayhem? Last year's crowds translated to kind of a big spike in calls for search and rescue. Last year also saw a record number of fatal boating accidents. So how did that shake out this year? Well, just like the crowds, the number of rescues stayed pretty close to record pace. It's actually been since 2019 that the number of search and rescue incidents has been pretty high up there. Uh, It definitely went up during the pandemic when a ton of people with limited experience were kind of looking for something to do and the outdoors was kind of the only thing. So as of the end of September, we've had 843 rescues so far. Uh, There were between 1,100 and 1,200 rescues in 2020 and 2019, and that was the record number. And you can compare that to maybe a decade ago, there was about 850 rescues. So we've been taken up by a couple hundred, but it wasn't all doom and gloom. Uh, The number of boating deaths, which set a record last year with 27 fatal accidents, this year has only had 12 fatalities. One trend that I did hear about from the state search and rescue coordinator is that more Oregonians are going farther afield and getting into trouble. So Wallowa County, and that's going to include the Wallowa Mountains, for example, they only saw an average of maybe six rescues per summer in the mid-2010s. In 2019, that jumped to 19 missions. And in 2020, it was up to 42. And I've heard this about the Blue Mountains as well, that just more people from Bend and the Willamette Valley were heading in those directions, whether it was because of crowds or permits or whatever, they're traveling to places they didn't travel before. So, like you said, one thing driving crowding and people spreading out this summer were were those massive closures from the Labor Day fires. One year later, is there any feel for how long those closures are going to last? Honestly, not not really. Um, For the Opal Creek and the North Fork area east of Salem, those areas will for sure stay closed for another summer. We know that because they just erected a new gate that went up and it's going to keep out everybody except residents that live there or have a cabin there. As far as the Forest Service land, I think at least another year is almost certain, maybe more. Some places will start to reopen sooner. The Upper Clackamas should reopen in late fall. I think there's an outside chance Shelburne Fall could open in some capacity next year as well. But for the large swaths of land on Willamette National Forest, there's legal disputes going on right now. And I just don't know when things are going to start to even move in that direction for those big areas from Opal Creek to Mount Jefferson. And remember, it took Eagle Creek Trail three years to reopen after the Eagle Creek fire. And I think that's a pretty good baseline for what to expect here, unfortunately. So one final bit of news from a few weeks ago, it was announced that Oregon was planning to charge out-of-state RV campers an extra 25% beginning next year at state park campgrounds. So what prompted this? Yeah, this story generated uh, a lot of response for sure. This actually came from a bill that passed the Oregon legislature last session that basically required this surcharge. 
It was authored by Senator Kathleen Taylor of Milwaukee. And let me say, savvy move. Uh, as Oregon campsites have gotten harder and harder to get, Oregonians by and large just love the idea of charging <laughs> tourists more money to come here. I should say it doesn't apply to tent sites or yurts. This is just for RV sites, you know, used by trailers and motorhomes. And the thing is, Oregonians already pay a little extra for RV fees that go to parks. So in a way, this is just leveling the playing field. But really, anytime we're sticking it to Californians or Washingtonians, <laughs> Oregons are pretty happy about that. Um, so any other big stories that come out of this summer for you? You know, just getting back to the wildfires a little, there's a lot of concern about what Oregon is going to face over the coming decade, whether we're going to see California's level of problem with wildfires. And the answer, based on the conversations I've had with experts, is that probably not to that extent. Oregon does have a drying forest and hotter temperatures, plenty of fuels, and that's going to drive more wildfires than we're certainly used to historically. But the big thing California has that Oregon doesn't to the same extent are winds and east winds in specific. East winds are what fueled the Labor Day blow up in Oregon last year. And the majority of our big wildfire events can be traced back to these east winds that just roll over the Cascades, get super dry and come down like a blast furnace. Fortunately, Oregon just doesn't get east winds during wildfire season at near the same frequency as California. Down there, the winds actually have names, the Santa Anas and the Diablo winds. So fire is going to be part of our lives to a much greater extent, especially in the south and uh, central and eastern part of the state. But I still think 2020 was an outlier. That's not a taste of the future. All right, we're going to head to a break. When we return, our intern, Eddie Benford-Rost, will have a report on a trail in the Mount Jefferson wilderness that a group is working to restore. All right, our newest sponsor is Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean beach, ancient forest, and a shocking number of beautiful places you might never have heard of, all centered around towns like Manzanita, Pacific City, and Tillamook. This is a beautiful area to visit, and the best way to plan a trip here is by looking at their newly created trails and recreation map. The map features 800 different sites from campgrounds to beaches to hiking trails. My favorite thing about the map is that it breaks down activities into 13 categories. So say you're looking for a campsite. Just click on the drop down menu and 22 different campsites appear. And you can get information on each one. If you're looking for a hike or a way to get on the water, the map has 40 different trails and 48 boat ramps all laid out on an easy to navigate digital map. To find the map and get started, visit TillamookCoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. All right, we're back. In the second half of the show, we're going to hear from our new intern, Eddie Benford-Ross, who traveled out to the Sisters area to report in an effort to bring back some forgotten trails in the Mount Jefferson wilderness. So here she is checking in with us. Hey, Eddie, how are you doing out there? Hi, Zach. I am here in Sisters, Oregon right now, and I just finished hiking or should I say bushwhacking, the Brush Creek Trail in the Mount Jefferson Wilderness area. It's a trail that has been labeled abandoned by the Forest Service and has not been maintained since the B&B fire back in 2003. But a group of volunteer trail workers are trying to get it reestablished, largely because it features long stretches of spectacular views. From the trail, seven major peaks are visible, including Mount Jefferson, the Sisters, and Mount Washington. Today, I joined two members of the group to check out this trail firsthand. And while it was pretty rough, it took us approximately five and a half hours to go 
about seven miles, not including a stop for lunch. The views are truly striking. Here's an interview that I did with Greg Callio, who is spearheading the effort to restore the trail. Hi, I'm Greg Callio. I'm retired and live in Sisters, Oregon. And one of my activities is to do volunteer trail work for the Forest Service. Uh, I've been hiking in the Mount Jefferson Wilderness for many, many years, and I enjoy the trails there and have worked on maintaining some of those trails. In the fall of 2018, uh, I met some folks that were maintaining the Jefferson Lake Trail and I got interested in, in that project and helped them and, and then uh, began considering another trail called the Brush Creek Trail that I had read was going to be decommissioned by the Forest Service. And because I had hiked that trail several times through, well, since the 1980s, I was kind of attached to it and I enjoyed its uniqueness and was sorry to hear that it was going to be decommissioned. So I got involved with um, talking with the Forest Service to see what it would take to keep Brush Creek Trail as part of their inventory. Uh, I gathered other, other interested people and, and we formed a small group of experienced uh, trail people and we wrote a proposal to the Forest Service um, asking for permission to uh, revive or resurrect the Brush Creek Trail, which is currently in, in pretty rough shape. Part of it is in, in pretty rough shape. The first half mile is total brush. It would take a bit of work, but we feel we have the capability of doing it. Can you elaborate more on like what state the trail is in? Like what did we just hike through? I divide the trail up into like four sections and uh, the conditions of, of the trail varies from no tread to very good tread, I would say, and which we experience today. Um, the area that has no tread at all is really the first mile or mile and a half from the trailhead up to about 5,800 feet. And the reason there's no tread there is because that was burned severely by the B&B &B fire in 2003. And since then, very minimal maintenance has been, has occurred on this trail. And as a result, you know, there's been regrowth and small conifers snowbrush especially has taken over that hillside so um, it's it's uh, a little challenging to get through it to find your way up to where the tread still exists which is about a mile and a half up uh, there the tread suddenly appears and then from that point to the pct it comes in and out there's some one section that has excellent trail uh, but then others that where the tread disappears. Um, and so our feeling is that to revive this trail, we really need to focus on that first half mile. That's gonna take a fair bit of work, but the rest of the trail is in remarkable shape. It would not take that much work to revive it. So why did you choose to focus your efforts on this trail? I feel that it is a spectacular trail. It offers something unique something different from neighboring trails on the east side of the Mount Jefferson Wilderness, namely spectacular scenery. Um, you, what you get very quickly up to a ridge of, the, of around 6,000 feet where you can look 
south, north, and east and see the Three Sisters, Broken Top, Mount Washington, Three Finger Jack, and then to the north you can see um, Mount Jefferson. Mount Jefferson is quite, quite close. And then to the east, you have Black Butte, and you can see Green Ridge. You can see even further all the way out to the Ochocos. So the scenery is, is remarkable. That's one reason. Um, and another is that it's very close to the PCT. I think those, especially those two reasons, the fact that it's a spectacular and it's close to the PCT, uh, make it a, a worthy trail to, to, to be revived or reestablished. So can you give us a little history of the trail? Um, like, when was it abandoned, around when, and why? Well, first of all, the Brush Creek Trail, we believe, has been around probably since the 1930s or 40s, possibly built by the uh, CCC. It's always been in this category of being seldom used and seldom maintained. And so those folks that would hike it were well, generally those that wanted, were seeking greater solitude than the more popular trails and just wanted to see something different. So moving up to 2003, the B&B &B fire, that devastated the east side of the Mount Jefferson wilderness and burned about 50% of the Brush Creek Trail and even more of other trails. And um, because Brush Creek was not regarded as a must-have popular trail. The focus was put on other trails like the Cabot Lake and the, the Canyon Creek Meadow Trail. Now the, Will, the uh, Central Cascades Wilderness Strategies project which came about in 2016 uh, is also important in this story because while the Brush Creek Trail was really off their inventory at that time it was not included in, in that strategy. However with limited entry on popular trails, people may want to disperse or, well, there's two terms that are used, displace and disperse. They may get displaced because they can't find or they cannot get reservations on the popular trails. And so that will, and if they still want to hike, period, they get displaced to other lesser used trails that have no quota. And if that demand is great enough, then that would bode well for Brush Creek Trail because the Brush Creek Trail would provide another trail for people to use while they can't get on the more popular ones. How can people help if they want to help? Right now, the, the only thing they can help with is saying they're interested in helping, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Because we, we cannot do anything until we get Forest Service, Forest Service permission to cut a twig, you know, or whatever, a log, uh, whatever, and minimal. We need, and we will not lay hands on, on that work until we get, you know, legal permission to do it. Uh, so if someone is interested, they should get hold of me, and I'll add them to my advocate list. We have a Facebook group called Save the East Cascade Trails. The Brush Creek Trail is just one of several abandoned trails on the east side of the Mount Jefferson Wilderness area. The Forest Service has said they will consider reopening that trail and the others, likely making that decision in the next couple years after they see how the new permit system is working. 
The best case scenario is that it'll take a few years to come to that decision about reopening, do the legal work required to reopen it, and then begin returning the trail to a more accessible state. I'll have more information about Brush Creek and the other abandoned trails in the Jefferson Wilderness at statesmanjournal.com forward slash outdoors. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. We hope you had a chance to get out and enjoy the outdoors this summer. If not, know that there's still plenty to do, even as fall brings rain showers and earlier sunsets. If you like what you heard, check out our back catalog out of what is now over 50 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore. You can also find us, as always, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Amazon Music. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast, a great place to plan your outdoor adventure with the help of a new recreation map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.